Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I am a 30-year Wall Street veteran who's gone underground, taken on a secret identity, changed my voice, moved to another city in order to bring you my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV. You've seen me quoted in the news. But my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I've disguised my voice, and they'll never know. This week, I look at the April 9th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. Um, but before we get to that, a couple of important caveats for you new listeners who may not be aware of what goes on here on the show. <clears throat> uh, this show is for entertainment purposes only, and it's important to note that's not a guarantee. Also, I may have many complicated conflicts of interest, so I may be saying the exact opposite of what I'm doing and doing the opposite of what I'm saying, uh, certainly. And importantly, here's a real caveat, I may be completely uninformed, and I'm really not kidding about that. And also, um, for new listeners, it's important to know I may be heavily drinking. So it, it is after hours, after work. This is a hobby. Uh, I don't get paid to do this. It's just my crazy hobby. And, um, you know, so be warned. See all the caveats at www.thevalueguys.com. There's uh, pictures there, bios that are true, except the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Um, and uh, we've got about uh, four years of shows uh, linked to the site, also on iTunes, but also you can get them on the site. And there's also a best ideas list there going back four years, every few weeks. One of the, my recommendations is a favorite. Put it up there, and I don't sell it, and it sits there, and you can see the performance over that period. And it's, there were times a few years ago where it was really pretty sad, pretty red, but things have turned. It was, it's was it been a great year. Uh, as I said last week, uh, the Russell 2000 value, which is my benchmark, I was up 65% year over year as of March, and that's, um, you know, I didn't check in terms of where that ranks, in terms of historical gains, but, you know, it's not going to be difficult to assume. It's certainly in the top five, could be the best. I have no idea. Uh, okay, well, the format of this show is, uh, here at least here in 2010, we changed things up a little bit. I, I've been doing a rant, and that's been pretty well received. I get email, uh, val at thevalueguys.com. I do try to answer email. Um, and I've been doing a rant about, you know, it's mainly business, politics, you know. Um, but I started thinking, you know, well, who, who am I to do a rant? Who cares, you know? So I decided that instead of just doing a, just a random rant, just out of nowhere, Although it's mostly taxes, I figured out long ago it's almost always something about taxes, and that will most likely remain true. But I've decided to change to give the rant kind of a name, you know, as a, as a segment, you know, sort of official up this, it's just not just a rant, but call it, um, make it a little more personal to me. You know, uh, these are my favorite stocks this week. And here's this issue for me, which I'm going to start to call, it would help my portfolio if. So that would be the new title of this rant segment. Instead of just a rant, it would help my portfolio if. And probably help your portfolio. So 
Uh, what's my, it would help my portfolio if this week, okay. It would help my portfolio if the government would stop crucifying businessmen in Congress, taking them uh, to task, uh, because and, and pinning this whole crisis on them, which is really just a crisis of loaning people money who couldn't pay it back, um, using the very assets they were buying and, and paying too much for as collateral. So everyone involved in that had some blame, rating agencies, etc. But when you want to look at policy that drove this, what is it? It wasn't suddenly banks deciding they could ease up lending standards at all. Because uh, historically, you know, banks, it was their own money, the owners, the people there at the bank owned the bank. It was their own money, so they were very careful with it. Same on Wall Street. When you had private partnerships owning brokerages, uh, they were very careful it was their own money. If the broke banker, if the if the firm went broke, they went broke, and there was no government to bail them out. They'd be living at their uh, cousin's house or something. So, um, you know, those systems that were in place without any government, um, you know, served people well uh, to understand risk. Not to say there weren't a lot of banking crises, there were, but the losers went broke, and it helped, I think, people you know, be a little more disciplined. But what happened this time was you had some policy coming out of the whole PC, politically correct movement, and uh, the Garrison Keillor school of, you know, everybody's above average, and everybody deserves to have everything, and, you know, why should we have to choose who... Uh, gets health care, everyone should get health care. You know, why should we have to choose who goes to Harvard? Maybe everyone should go to Harvard. Um, those kinds of things. But what we, what we have is that um, we had a policy that promoted increasing home ownership for uh, those segments of the population that traditionally hadn't enjoyed as much home ownership. Now, traditionally, it was because uh, lower-income um, families throughout history didn't own their homes. They would often rent their homes because of the cyclical nature of their uh, earning power, what have you. I mean, this is history we're talking about. This has always been the case. Um, but there was policy changes uh, that drove uh, the sentiment in Congress and at the presidential level uh, under the Clinton administration. This goes way back to promote more home ownership among what really were uh, minorities and women, because when you look at the demographics, those are the segments that, on average, are below income uh, segments. It's you know, it's it's not always because they're women and minorities. It's because they have less education, less experience, those kinds of things. Um, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. But the fact is, there was a policy change to promote more home ownership in those groups, and that led to pressure for banks to lend more money to those groups as well. And to facilitate that whole process, Freddie, May, or Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, um, the big government, uh, quasi-government, now wholly government-owned, but prior quasi-government organizations, they began uh, loosening the standards that would allow them to buy loans from banks. So what this did was it created a secondary market for mortgages. So when the local banker made a loan 
to somebody, uh, these quasi-government agencies would buy those loans um, and the standards, the income standards, things like income to uh, to loan ratio, those kinds of important metrics that had stood the test of time for years were eased up in order to promote the notion that these people deserved to uh, own homes, the great American dream, just like all the other people. And so uh, you had a system that was put in place, and then those loans, um, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, many of those loans were bought by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, but other loans that looked exactly like the loans that Freddie and Fannie would have bought, those are the loans that also went over to Wall Street. And the reason Wall Street was so comfortable with them and rating agencies rated them highly, and again, they were looking, they, they should have been more diligent, the rating agencies certainly. But, you know, everyone was comforted by, by, by the fact that a lot of these secondary mortgages were being bought by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, who guaranteed them, so it created this sense of safety. As if, you know, in a sense, not to create a metaphor that's too big of a stretch, but if you're in a boat and there's, you know, pirates, but you've got the United States, uh, you know, the, the an aircraft carrier sitting behind you and you're in your boat and you're an American and you're way, you have an American flag, you know, perhaps you have a sense of comfort and safety. Now, the aircraft carrier hasn't said that they will protect you from the pirates, but, you know, you're an American, they're the United States Navy, they have a big boat, and so if they seem to be letting this boat come by and it seems friendly and you, you know, by that very nature of the aircraft carrier liking this little boat, you assume that boat's okay, you wander over to offer that boat some water or something and and they start shooting at you, I think it would be safe to assume that the aircraft carrier will protect you. But no, that's not what happened here. Now, maybe that that got a little far afield. But the point is, is that when the U.S. government was, in effect, uh, endorsing the purchase of these loans, in effect because they themselves and agencies of the government had changed some of the criteria to approve the purchase of the loan. So again, inferring some of these things was just logic. Um, it turned out that, of course, the government itself wasn't doing the very homework that they're now holding others accountable for and blaming others for, when in fact a lot of this uh, comes to roost right in Washington where our elected politicians created a policy to, in effect, loan people money who could not pay it back and whose standard banking ratios would suggest couldn't pay it back, but those bankers themselves were overridden. And, you know, once that became the policy, uh, of course, bankers signed on to be agents to the process and, uh, and made a few bucks. But um, it's not helpful when you have business people being treated like criminals because in our system uh, it's these business people and the wealthy who have enough money to invest in things to allow a return. So when, when you start punishing the people through embarrassment or shame or, or if you start changing incentives for the smartest Americans to go into business and instead they want to go into government, government doesn't make anything, this isn't going to be good for the future of my portfolio because 
the way my portfolio is going to have the most value is if the economy is the biggest. And so if we start doing things that don't have a good return, that will impede growth in the economy. That will impede the size of the economy and the size of the market. And that's going to ultimately impede the value of, uh, of my stocks. So there's my, uh, there's my little comment. It would help my portfolio if government would take a little responsibility themselves, and I haven't yet heard anyone doing that. So uh, there's my uh, rant for the day, what have you. Okay, three stock ideas this week. I didn't do as much work as I was hoping to. I've been very rushed lately. These are three ideas that I know I've spoken about before. And they're they're little they're easy ones. So, you know, you're this is not any fresh information here you're gonna get from Val today. But first up, page thirteen sixty two this week, Intel I N T C. Um they reported earnings today and uh it's uh Tuesday, so I'm quite a bit late. I'm three days late off the price uh, the date on this. But the stock's twenty two seventy seven closed Tuesday, um the twelfth. Is it the twelfth? Yeah, I think so. Tuesday, whatever the date is, nine, ten, the thirteenth today. Tuesday, the thirteenth. So it's up a little bit off this price, but not much. Um, and I guess the numbers were good, which doesn't surprise me. We're in a little bit of a capital spending up cycle here, um, and certainly the comparisons to last year are pretty easy since industrial uh, spending and production fell off a cliff. Uh, last year during this period. But the theme here is you have a high-margin proprietary, uh, I'm going to say monopoly, in the sense that Intel chips are being provided not only to the, um, you know, Windows platforms of the world, but also to the uh, Apple uh, platform, uh, since Apple converted over to Intel chips a few years ago. And um, who knows, they're doing other stuff too. Um, they do 85% of their business overseas. They do $40 billion in sales. The thing that's so impressive when you look at the numbers is that they, uh, they have very little debt, 5% debt to capital. They're returning, uh, for a big company, for $40 billion in sales. They're returning, you know, mid-teens, upper-teens, lower-teens returns on capital, um, they had a period, uh, you know, in the mid-20s, it dipped down into the upper teens, and I think at times they get into competitive situations with AMD, um, and so they have pricing, you know, competition that causes them to reduce their returns on capital. You can see that also in their margin as it moves around. That also might reflect uh, cycles where in the early years of a new uh, chip, maybe their returns are lower because depreciation is higher. Um, you know, I'm just not sure on that. The The life cycle of these chips is is so short that um, CapEx spending here is pretty high, although when I look at depreciation, and you see that it's about $4.4 billion. And then I look at capital spending, which they give you per share, $0.85 cents times $5 billion. It's It's roughly in sync. So... Um, despite what I would expect is a very heavy CapEx cycle here, you know, it's depreciation is covering it, so it's a cash flow neutral. Um, but these guys are putting up a 40% operating margin, and that says monopoly to me. And the reason it says that 
is simply that if the margin is 40%, that means that the costs are 60%. And so 40 over 60 um, is uh, 67%, I think. 4 over 6, 2 over 3. So that's the markup on their costs. And, you know, if other people could do this, they would maybe shave a, shave a dime off. They'd be willing to mark it up 50%, 40%, etc. So something about that margin says um, we don't need to price compete. Um, and then the return on capital at 20%, you know, again, that's, that's suggesting that you've got something going on that's not so easy to copy and you've got some protection on your niche there. Um, and that's been going on a long time. So I see that, that in the stats. Of course, as a fairly well-known company, we can surmise what's happening. Of The bulk of computers in people's homes are running on Intel chips, and then they back that up with a very nice campaign so that early on in the sort of you know PC cycle they began to brand their stuff that was on the inside of the computer I'm not so sure we all know what the video chip is but we know what the um, processor chip is and that's Intel so there's a brand element to this as well the valuation for a company with a monopoly um, looks pretty good and I think there's still some fear in this one because the CapEx cycle dropped so heavily for these companies, and the numbers year over year were so bad. Um, you know, from a peak of, I mean, for Intel, I guess it wasn't that bad. Their peak sales were $38 billion and the trough sales last year were $35 billion. So that's a, you know, less than 10% decline in revenue. Um, earnings you know, fell 30% from that period. So there's still some fear, I think, that this isn't coming back. But what would give me conviction is PCs. And when you think about the PC as a productivity tool, uh, it's got a pretty good ROI to the buyer. So I think that, um, you know, that trend of humans wanting to own PCs and wanting to own the new model of the PC is going to continue and so I have some conviction in that. And I think that Intel, you know, certainly AMD is going to be out there, but there's makes no sense whatsoever for anyone to try to come in here. Um, you know, these guys have $50 billion in equity. I'm sure to get to their economies of scale, um, you know, you'd have to you'd have to ramp up. They've got $40 billion in sales. Now, AMD, for a lot of years... I don't have an AMD sheet in front of me, but they were like one-fifth the size of Intel, and they managed to keep up with a few generations of chips. But, you know, Intel at their size was spending five times the R&D every year. And so when you think about somebody coming in here with a startup, my opinion would be pretty unlikely um, that they have that to fear. Now, there are other companies, Texas Instruments and... Uh, you know, I don't have the list here, but Fairchild, you know, whoever. And so I suppose that you could do a switch, but, you know, that leaves open the question of the installed base and the, you know, migration of programs and 
legacy systems and and so unless intel goes completely crazy with their pricing and when they can show a 19% return on capital um and their customers um are generally showing a higher return on capital i guess certainly apple is i i don't think dell is at the moment but you know they're going to in my opinion continue to get that price so i feel good about the likelihood of of a sustainable you know revenue and earnings growth and right now i'm getting that in part because of i think still a little bit of concern about the potential recovery i'm getting that for seven times ebitda so enterprise value here in other words the value of the shares the number of shares times the price plus the debt less the cash if we spend that um, that amount that gives us the right to all the cash flow here without interest and so and that might be represented by ebitda earnings before interest taxes depreciation and amortization and we know in value line which is what i'm looking at it's my only resource here uh the operating margin they have here excludes depreciation so it is truly earnings before interest taxes and depreciation in uh gap accounting when you look at an annual report or a 10k depreciation when you're looking at operating earnings as it's reported by your particular company that will already have depreciation subtracted out and it's buried in it, it sometimes is referred to uh overtly but it's often buried in cost of goods or sg&a it gets attached to the areas where it resides in value line because they're dealing with about 10 lines of information they try to consolidate and condense so they report it a little differently and you can actually multiply operating margin times sales to get ebitda which makes it easy for me because I don't have a calculator here so when i do that math i get about 110 billion in enterprise value and i get about uh 16 billion maybe a little higher than that in ebitda and that's seven times now i have students write in well seven times what does that mean well it means that um if we invest seven dollars they're earning a dollar and we're investing seven so i like to look at the inverse of that one over seven and that would reflect to me my cash return i've just laid out seven dollars in this case i've laid out 110 billion me and some buddies presumably um and then i'm going to get uh 16 billion every year and it should grow a little bit so 16 over 110 1 over 7 is same thing roughly is about 14%. So that's a 14% cash on cash return. Now that's a pre-tax number. Uh and it's pre-financing, but I've just paid cash. Assuming I can get that amount of cash, the cost to me of that cash is a separate calculation. If I can manage to borrow it at 5% over here and buy this company at 14, I make the spread. So that's you know that's why you keep that calculation separate look at the cash generation capability of a company before interest because i could maybe finance that some other way and yeah, i may just have that cash sitting around in in the bank something like that um so 1 over 7 14% and according to value line intel's going to grow 
at 10% per year. And, um, you know, I think that's believable. You'll get unit growth, plus they might get a little pricing. And so uh, there you have it. 14% cash on cash, plus the value of my investment, assuming a stable multiple um, times earnings. Uh, the value will grow at the rate of earnings growth every year. And in this case, if it's 10%, um, that's a real return to me, and it's and it's uh, cap gains tax which, instead of income tax, so that's a, a higher um, after-tax return to me, but I'm ignoring that for the moment. Some people own these things in IRAs, et cetera, so it wouldn't matter. Um, but um, I'm going to add that to my cash return, 14% cash on cash plus the growth rate, 10%. This could be a mid-20s earner, and, uh, you know, if that's too high, you still have a lot of room to do pretty well in Intel. Okay, next up, Texas Instruments, ticker TXN, and page 1382. Now, I I don't know anything about Texas Instruments. I did have a TI calculator when I was in high school. It was really the coolest thing you could have, HP... Or not an HP, I'm sorry, a Texas Instrument TI-11 and 12 or something like that, the business calculators, I don't know. And then HP came out with the HP 45 and blew that away. Um, what was that thing, the TI, I don't know, it wasn't a 12. Anyway, 55, I don't know, right in. But Texas Instruments, so, um, you know, they've managed to be around. They do $13 billion in sales. They earn a 19% return on capital. Uh, they don't do Intel-type margins, but they're in the 30s, and they've got 10 years of doing this. So they've got proprietary margins for a long time. I don't have to know what they're doing to appreciate that it's something that allows them to earn that type of return. Um, now, I would note something unusual here. It didn't stop me from recommending it, but it's certainly worth noting in January, they have 16 insider sales. I think that's the biggest number I've ever seen. Um, now, oftentimes what that means is options have been triggered. And so you've earned money, according to the government. You've elected to buy options. Um, and so if the stock is higher than the option buy-in price. I believe that's income right at that moment. And so then you sometimes have to sell shares to pay that tax. And so, uh, you know, this happening in January, it's very possible that's the reason, but it's a big number. Um, now, it could be it's the opposite of the bad news because so many people, you know, bought in and had stock options, exercise them. They want to own the stock, but then they got to you know, pay some tax here. Um, so that's bad. But other than that, the valuation is very similar to Intel, seven times EBITDA. Uh, value line seems to think these guys are going to grow a little faster, 15% instead of Intel's 10. You know, I have no idea. Um, you know, we know what Intel's business is because it's visible, but um, Texas Instruments, according to value line, they are a leading supplier of digital signal processors and analog devices to makers of electrical controls, educational and productivity solutions, and metallurgical uh, materials. So 
Hmm. Uh, royalty income from licensing proprietary technology is significant. Hmm. So that could help explain the margin. Um, you know, maybe the actual margin is 15%, but then they have a royalty that's 17% of sales that has no cost against it, falls right to EBIT, and then suddenly the operating margin looks like it's 34%. So there's something like that going on here, quite possibly. Uh, they have no debt, so I like that. So, um, you know, I'm not going to say companies can't go bankrupt, but when there's no debt involved, you, you really can't, in a sense, go bankrupt. Um, let's see. Uh, valuation looks good seven times. That's 14% plus value line says 15% growth. So 14% uh, plus 15 is 29 so, you know, with that kind of valuation, I really can know less here. You know, there's so much margin for error. Um, the stock is trading well below its normal valuation. Now, the other thing that could be going on here is that, and you heard it in one of my caveats, I have n no idea what's going on here. I'm just reading value line. Now, this is dated April 9th, which is a couple of days ago. Um, you know... Um, now, here's something. Value Line's conclusion is the equities valuation appears fairly inexpensive, and yet they rated 3, which is neutral. So, I don't know. I don't understand that. Um, the balance sheet looks great. They have no debt. They have $3 billion in cash, which is uh, about $3 a share. It's... Uh, Let's see. Its business looks pretty good right now. Orders are rising, according to Value Line. Book-to-bill ratio was positive, which is the the bookings divided by the billings when it's when it's rising. Um, you know, supposed to give you some you know look at uh, growth rates going forward. But you know, people can cancel orders, so I you know it's it's it can it could sometimes be helpful, but really. You know, sometimes analysts just want numbers to analyze when really these aren't, uh, you know, numbers created by a mechanical device. It's just people saying stuff. So things can change fast. Um, in very strong times, people double order just to make sure they get something and then, and then they cancel toward the end. So these are, <coughs> excuse me, not always telling you everything. Um Capital spending looks good here. I'm just sort of reading along here. That'll explain the pauses. Uh, depreciation is about a billion, but then capex uh, do the sh they make me do the multiplication here. Sixty five cents per share times a billion two shares. So, uh, you know, capex looks roughly in line with uh, depreciation. So cash flow looks good. I, you know, I don't know what they do exactly. But with a 34% operating margin, high return on capital, and seven times EBITDA, you know, a near-term business looking good, uh, I don't have to know a lot. You know, that's pretty interesting to me, Texas Instruments. And then finally, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Excuse me, everyone. i got to have a beverage break. Okay, it's an homage. I used to do a lot more drinking on the show. I maybe need to get back to that. Of course, with the markets going up, maybe there's less need. I don't know. So, where am I here? 
Okay, IBM. I've done this a lot of times on the show. Page 1411. I noticed something this week that surprised me. If you've been investing for a lot of years or been an observer of the economy, you know, you had your IBM, which sort of launched the whole PC thing and helped, you know, created Microsoft. um, And, uh, you know, you have Apple kind of coming along and always being sort of there, but the small guy that's good, but small. I noticed in this week's issue I couldn't do Apple because it's so expensive, but uh, IBM, which I'm doing, has a market cap of $168 billion. Apple, the market cap is over $200 billion. So I don't know if this has happened before. Apple's, uh, I think, near an all-time high right now, you know, with all the success they've had and, um, and all the publicity of the uh, iPad. So, you know, I, I didn't do the, the chart, but... It very well could be that we're in a period that um, is a first in the history of computer where uh, one um, computer company of the past has been overtaken by uh, the computer company of the future, um, Apple, uh, just recently in terms of market cap, so I thought that was noteworthy. Microsoft, I didn't even look up the market cap. It's quite likely it's bigger than both, so I don't even want to bring them into it. Um, Anyway, what do I like about IBM? Again, like anything, I'm just attracted to the valuation. This one is also seven times EBITDA, so one over seven is 14%. So if we were to buy the whole company, IBM right now, we'd get a 14% cash-on-cash return. So right there, I'm doing better than I can do at the bank or any bond, uh, any dividend yield. You know, so, uh, you know, you you get a bunch of people together, shareholders, and you buy this thing, and that's pretty good. So I get interested. (coughs) According to Value Line, they're going to grow 8%, so 14% plus 8, 22%. I'm interested. That's pretty good. And it suggests that people could bid up the stock to a lower yield. And as they do that, the yield comes down. As the market believes that someone actually might buy that company or, uh, you know, not uh, uh, not in reality, but, you know, recommend it, move toward it, who knows, uh, then that yield will come down. As people think the growth rate has a better chance to, uh, to move higher or a higher probability of being realized, then uh, that yield can come down. And that's how you, you know, that's how at least traditional value investors, I think, think about earning money in the stock market. You get a yield while you wait, and then as growthier type investors or optimists start to see the improvement over time, they bid up the stock, the yield comes down, um and um and and value investors who have patience earn a decent return and that could be the case here in uh, IBM is selling near a historical low on valuation they're putting up a mid 20s nearly 30% return on capital they do 100 billion in revenue so that's that's a return on capital that's no small feat uh for them they've got a mid 20s operating margin that's been steadily improving for 10 years. They have a culture of buying stock back, so they understand the value 
of their cash and if they don't have a capital spending project that delivers a decent ROI they know enough to give you the money back so I like that um, they have had you know storied CEOs in the past uh, I don't know much about or anything about the current CEO Samuel Paul Masano so I mean it's a competitive job so he must be good but I I haven't heard much but just on the stats alone the brand the returns on capital and revenue um, this thing is looking very interesting at this valuation they're pretty diversified now from a product point of view um, over the last 10 years IBM's moved a lot in the direction of software that's helped their return on capital uh, they've moved a little bit away from the leasing model they used to operate toward direct purchase um, that's helped their return on capital and uh, I'm looking here they you know they've maintained a pretty stable uh, debt load it's it's higher than I'd like 49 percent debt to capital but because of their high margin uh, they've got that covered uh, 17 times in terms of pre-tax earnings to um, interest so that's pretty good no risk risk there really um, when you look at value lines comments here um, you know they're talking about the transformation over the decade moving more towards software which I just talked about uh, you know they do a lot of business overseas 64 percent of revenue so that's nice diversification you know I don't know what their newest thing is but um, IBM seems to continue to have a core position in the IT departments uh, of the Fortune 1000 they've got um, a solution based offering that is sold on an ROI basis and they beat everyone um, else that's bidding traditionally and that's a pretty good combination so um, it's a brand I think will endure with a product slate that's still relevant uh, today and they've worked hard to keep it so IBM ticker IBM and so I guess I'm gonna have to have it that's all this week everybody but I'm gonna have a favorite now and I think um, you know it's gonna have to be Intel ticker INTC and that's this week's show everybody thanks for listening in this has been Val Hughes of The Value Guys. Check us out at www.thevalueguys.com, and I'll see you next week.